old enough for you? No? Well, go south, young man. Go south. I think you'll find it's cold enough there. <laughs> Good morning to you all. Um, we're going to begin the second chapter of Ephesians this week. So if you could please turn there now. In the first chapter, Paul has taken us, hopefully, to some sublime heights in his introductory comments. And he has provided theologians with material for heaps of books in just these first few sentences by introducing us to major themes like predestination, spiritual favor, adoption into the family of God, redemption, forgiveness, and insight into God's mysteries. Now, I've mentioned theologians mainly as a pointer to the depth of these matters, but I want to emphasize that these aren't just weird factoids of interest only to professors who are closeted away in a dusty room somewhere away from real life. But they are real and living and they are relevant to us now. And um, who, who remembers what the definition of, a, of theology is? Nobody. It's those boring people, isn't it? Those theologians. Well, actually, it's just knowing about God. And we all need to know about God. So, to some extent, we all are theologians. Now, these things that I've been speaking about, they aren't irrelevant. They are marvelous gifts that have been received from a loving and mighty and awesome God. And yet, they were provided to unworthy sinners. In chapter 2, we will move into a reminder of the privileges of our present situation compared with our past death, sinfulness and bondage to evil. So let's read then from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. May God bless to us this reading of his word. To begin with, who is Paul speaking to? Well, it's you, of course, and that means you, and you, and you over there, and me up here as well. If you are a believer, then this is what God has done for you. He has made us alive. If he has made us alive, then it is a deliberate act. There was nothing unplanned or accidental about it. This means that God had a purpose in doing so. And what was that? Well, we already know that purpose because we've read about it. It is for the praise of the glory of his grace, as we read about in chapter 1. Is that something that God does by himself? Well, no, we can participate in that, although it must be said that his glory doesn't depend on us. Therefore, it follows that we too have a purpose. And if you think about it, that's great news. Our purpose is to live lives that glorify God. We matter. There is order in our being. Friends, I don't think I'm alone in confessing that there have been times when I have questioned the meaning of life. Why am I here? What difference do I really make? 
And these are hard questions with potentially serious consequences if we get the answers wrong. If we don't think that what we do or what we are matters, then we can live very destructive lives that damage us and those around us. However, when we recognize the truth that Paul has said that God made us with purpose, then we have a rock on which to build our houses and no amount of bad weather will ever shift them. So when we are in those gloomy places, and they do come to all of us at some time, remember that God has made you. He has made you alive. And be alive for his glory. Now Paul is very clear about the state that we have been made alive from. It is death and trespasses and sins. So what is death? Well, if we go to the dictionary, it uh, goes beyond merely mentioning the obvious answer that it is the absence of life. Something that is dead no longer has a use or validity. It is ineffective and irrelevant. It lacks freshness, interest and vitality. All of these aspects then will be lacking from God's viewpoint if we are dead. Dead in what way? Well, in fact, death in this regard is a little bit more complicated than just the absence of breathing. But before we can understand this, we need to think about what are the essential parts of our nature and how they will fit together. This isn't as simple as it seems because, unsurprisingly, there are a number of positions on the nature of man, but only two of those are really credible. And they are called trichotomy and dichotomy. Oh, some good words for Sunday morning. Now, to, to help you remember those, you might like to think about a tree branch. Okay? One that splits into three pieces is trichotomous, okay? and one that splits into two is dichotomous. And those little diagrams might help you to remember that. So trichotomy teaches that we are made of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Now, we all know what the body is. Mine is speaking more loudly to me every day, and I must praise the Lord for Brufen. The soul is said to include a person's emotions, intellect, and will, whilst the spirit is something a little bit separate, a kind of higher state that gets switched on when a person becomes a Christian, and it's the part that directly interact, interacts with God. The other idea, dichotomy, agrees about the body part, but says that the words soul and spirit, well, they're actually used interchangeably in Scripture and they just mean the same thing. It is this view that is the most commonly used and it has the best basis in Scripture. The most telling argument is that we don't find any instances in Scripture of the words spirit and soul being used together, as in uh, when John died, his spirit and soul left the building. Okay, it's always either spirit or soul. Originally, God created us to have a unity of those two parts. And when he made Adam, his body and soul were intended to work harmoniously together. Although the state was lost when sin entered the world, we can look forward to enjoying it again when Christ returns. But, for now, they are at war. That isn't a state that we're expected to live with, however. 2 Corinthians challenges us as recipients of God's promises to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So, while God does have a plan for us to work through, 
and has supplied the Holy Spirit to aid us in that work, we are expected to cooperate with him in restoring his original intention for harmony of spirit and flesh. I started this little section with a question, in what way are we dead? Now that we've got a bit of understanding about the different parts, we can see that when Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he means that our spirit was dead, not our bodies, because the folks that he was writing to, which includes us, wouldn't obviously be able to read what he had written if they were dead. That's not the the end of the matter, because if they were literally spiritually dead, well, they also wouldn't be able to read it. So it can't be that. This spiritual death that he is speaking to is one from God's perspective. It's, it's how God looks at us. And that's extremely serious. In that state, he does not see us or regard us in any way. We are eternally separated from him. It's as though we don't exist at all. And although we might be walking about, talking to others and having fun, a part of us that includes our emotions, our intellect and will, and that engages with God, the sum of our usness, if you like, is missing when God looks around. Moreover, while there are consequences for us now in this life, there are also obviously larger continuing consequences, since this spiritual death will disqualify us from eternal life when we pass away. God isn't particularly interested in our flesh. He's made plenty of it and he can make plenty more. It's just stuff. It's our spirit that needs to be connected to him, that needs to be alive. You might think that I'm going on about this too much, but I want us to be very clear that this is a profound and serious matter. Death surrounds us so much. It is very much part of life in many, many ways. You know, the flowers on the table are dead. The chicken I had for dinner was dead The possum on the road on the way here was dead. And we move on. There are no consequences or further thought of the matter. It isn't that important. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't want to belittle or disrespect in any way those times when death comes agonizingly close to us. But it remains true that often death doesn't matter. We can't make that mistake with spiritual death. It mustn't be ignored either in ourselves or in others. Because to exist in that state means to have no access to spiritual life, truth, righteousness, inner peace and happiness or any of those blessings that the believer was promised in chapter 1. John MacArthur puts spiritual death like this. He says, Men apart from God are spiritual zombies the walking dead who do not know that they are dead. They go through the motions of life, but they do not possess it. That is a truly tragic and wasteful state. We can draw two things from this. Firstly, when you go outside into the world, remember that this is the life of the unbeliever. They are walking and talking, but they are dead. We, on the other hand, have life and we have the words of life to share and we must speak them whenever possible. Secondly, as people rescued from this place, we have a great deal to be thankful to God for. Let's remember to thank him for it. We can do this in prayer, 
But obviously we can also do this in his service. So, what actually killed our spirit? Are there people here who know about the board game Cluedo? Who's played Cluedo? Okay, so, was it John Wright in the forest with a pig knife that killed us? No. It was our trespasses and sins. Although Paul has used two words for the smoking gun, we can't read anything special into that. Most commentators agree that the words mean the same thing, which is a conscious and deliberate false step. And they suggest much more than an inadvertent mistake. They point to a willful action against God's holiness and righteousness and therefore a failure to live as one should. The responsibility for that failure has nothing to do with God. It is just an expression of the treacherous nature of humans. Paul has merely used two different words to express the breadth of the sinfulness that causes spiritual death. And I think he's also trying to remove any ideas of wriggle space. Now, by that I mean that uh, we exercise this little tendency to try to escape accusation by looking for a technicality to wriggle through. It doesn't matter how small it is, but we'll try and find it. However, the truth is that it is those sins and trespasses that we are responsible for that cause our spiritual death, and we can do nothing to recover from that position. Only God can save us. So in summary, this verse explains what we were like before the gracious work of God in saving us. Being dead, we had no way to speak with him and no power to change that. It was entirely the power of God that has made us alive. Now that Paul has made plain our previous spiritual condition, he goes on to expand the theme, drawing in more evidence to substantiate his claim. And his first statement in this is in verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. Now this picture of walking is not really a literal one. It doesn't have anything to do with the actual act of walking. But it is speaking about the ethical walk of life that every human participates in one way or the other. And we'll meet this phrase again no less than seven times in this book. And it shows that the matter of conduct is a very important one for Paul. When he says that they were walking together according to the course of the world, he means just that they were conforming to the standard of the times, not to the standard of God. The world has a kind of a mould for every generation that has been crafted by humans. That is, standards of behaviour and and morals and dress. It says that if you look like this and do things like this, well, then you're normal, you fit in. This has a terrible power over most of us. The biblical description of humans as sheep is pretty well chosen because we like to be in the herd, you know. We don't like to stand out. There's safety in numbers And we can't really face the pain and shame of the jeering and taunts that often come from being different. Unfortunately, the makers of the worldly mould, however well-intentioned they were, are using fleshly schematics for instruction. They are concerned with fashion and freedom, not obedience to God's standards. Thus, to walk in conformity with the world is to seek an easy pace in this life but unfortunately it guarantees death in the one following because God doesn't tolerate disobedience. 
So how do we stack up today? How are we speaking? What are we watching and reading? What do we think is tolerable and permissible behavior? What will we speak out for and what will we hold back from? Whilst these things should never define us as in-members of the Christian club, since that would mean a fall towards legalism and salvation by works, they should be evidence to the world of what lies inside us. I can't answer these questions for you, but it is certain that we all need to consider whether we are walking according to the course of this world, and if so, what should we be doing to change it? The second accusation Paul makes to specifically define the behavior of the unbeliever, those dead in sin, is also in verse 2. He says that the dead in spirit are walking according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, it's one thing to have our own sinful agenda, but another to have a diabolical agenda. What Paul is saying is that people in this condition aren't just behaving badly out of their own spirit, but they are actually submitting to the authority of Satan. It's a popular vision that hell is somewhere down there, and uh, therefore it's, it's away from us. We don't have to worry about it until later on. But this verse tells us that the devil is the ruler over the realm of the air. Does this mean that you are in more danger of satanic attack at 30,000 feet with Air New Zealand? Well, you'll have to ask Colin McGraw about that. But actually this term air, and incidentally the way that we say that, isn't very far removed from what the Greek word is. Well, it was thought in ancient times to be that substance that filled the space between the earth and the moon. The Greeks thought that it spoke of the lower impure air, which was where the spirits lived, as opposed to the higher pure air or ether. So the Ephesians that Paul was writing to would easily have understood that he was talking about the worst of a bad bunch in the nastiest place. This phrase tells us two things. Firstly, that Satan is universal, because where there is air... There is man, and there also is the devil too. You can't get away from him. Secondly, you can't get away from him because he is also local, because he is always right there next to you. It has an intimate connection with us, and and so potentially does Satan. Now, if this is who leads those dead in spirit, why should we be surprised by them exhibiting the lowest and most degrading behavior? Because that is Satan's speciality that he exalts in. That is why we find the most appalling things happening, like this recent incident about this young man being set on fire by another. You know, we shake our heads and we wonder how can that happen. This is why we should take the matter of not being a believer seriously. Those who are unbelievers are in the service of someone who wants the very worst for them. Surely that is a state that we shouldn't tolerate. How can we walk past those unbelievers lying in the gutter? Either we belong to God through the sacrifice of Christ, which brings life, or we belong to the Lord of the air, Satan, which guarantees death. And Satan is not idle either. The second part of verse 2 further defines the Lord of the air as the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. 
And that word works is our old friend energia. We've spoken about it before, the root of our modern word energy. Satan actually energizes disobedient and sinful activities. He isn't just a passive whisperer of, of suggestions in somebody's ear. He's more like a nightmare personal trainer who's encouraging the victim along while making sure they get the best foods and exercise. And this should be a further reason to be sure that we are properly respectful of his abilities and correctly dressed in the armor that we're going to read about later in Ephesians. Satan is no pushover. This phrase, sons of disobedience, is a Hebrew idiom which is frequently used in the Septuagint, which is an ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is held in great respect in ancient times, and it's still frequently referred to by modern scholars. So, for your fund of useless information, if you're, you're reading a commentary and you see uh, some reference to the LXX, it just means a Septuagint. And uh, LXX are the Roman numerals for the number 70. The translation of this book was originally, or reputedly done by 72 Jewish scholars for inclusion into a great Egyptian library in Alexandria, which very sadly is burnt down many years ago. Don't ask me why they left out the extra two scholars, because I can't tell you. (laughs) The short of it then is that this phrase, sons of obedience, would be commonly used like We say, good as gold today. It's well understood by the Ephesian readers. It stems from the belief in those times that any very intimate relationship could be spoken about as a kind of sonship, even in the spiritual realm. So, it would point to people with a very fundamental and serious type of disobedience. One might almost say that they were in love with it and practiced it at every opportunity. The word used for disobedience is the Greek word apatheia, from which we derive the modern word apathy. It has the idea of both disobedience and unbelief, which is very appropriate when you think about it, because disobedience starts with disbelief. I do not believe because I do not trust what I have been told, therefore I will not obey. So unbelievers are characterized as disobedient because they do not believe what God has provided. In fact, it goes beyond merely a lack of trust, because if you recall earlier, those sins and trespasses were conscious and deliberate steps. So this disobedience is actually open defiance of the Lord. They are well described as sons of disobedience, because they have a very intimate relationship with the one who is the father of disbelief, the breaker of every trust, the one who will not obey. Satan. Friends, let us be careful not to feel superior to those who are still in this condition because that is where every single one of us has come from by the grace of God. May he grant us the opportunities to extend a hand to them and may we always carry gratefulness in our hearts for what the Lord has done for us. We are directly reminded of our past by Paul's third point about the spiritually dead in verse 3. He writes, Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. 
All unbelievers are in the same condition of rebellion against God. It stems from the flesh. And here Paul uses the Greek word sarks. This word sarks describes the material part of the body and it also depicts the seat of lusts and affections. Unlike the spirit, it is seen to be transitory. That just means that it doesn't stay around for a long time. It's weak and it's limited in comparison to God. And yet, it tries to have its own way. This is a picture that the Ephesians will understand because it is also part of their daily language. Sin has gone through their whole person so that not even the tiniest part of them is unaffected. In fact, to emphasize the completeness of the corruption, notice how Paul has included the mind in the equation. He says, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. There are sins of thought as well as sins of actions. I found this quote which states the case well. Its language is quite old-fashioned, but its message is not. It says, It is as ruinous to indulge the desires of the mind as those of the flesh. By the marvellous gift of imagination, we may indulge holy fancies and throw the reins on the neck of the steeds of passion, always stopping short of the act. No human eye follows the soul when it goes forth to dance with satyrs or to thread the labyrinthine maze of the islands of desire. It goes and returns, unsuspected by the nearest. Its credit for snow-white purity is not forfeited. It is still permitted to watch among the virgins for the bridegroom's advent. But if this practice is unjudged and unconfessed, it marks the offender a son of disobedience and a child of wrath. We might think that the sins of the mind are hidden to all and that we can enjoy them without restraint, but they are clear to God and they are unacceptable to him as sins of the flesh. However, what Paul is speaking about is worse than merely thoughts because he says that the the desires of the mind are fulfilled. They are actually worked out in the flesh and they are visible a premeditated rejection of God and thought, and then indeed that may bring about momentary fleshly gratification, but it results in spiritual death. The final part of verse 3 says that believers were by nature children of wrath just as the others. This phrase, children of wrath, runs parallel to the earlier sons of disobedience. It's also a common Hebrew saying, but it carries a slightly different message about relationship. The idea of being a son has the thought of individual freedom and the dignity and responsibility of personal choice. To be a child, however, suggests a much closer relationship to and dependence on the parent. And to illustrate this, you know, we wouldn't talk about an 18-year-old person as a child, but a son or a daughter. So, to be a son of disobedience means someone who has disobeyed God through their own choice. But to be a child of wrath means that one has become guilty just by their relationship to their parents and ancestors. Paul is thus showing how our sin is a natural and unavoidable inheritance of our ancestors, stretching, in fact, right back to Adam. He neatly then adds the certainty of consequence with this word wrath, 
which of course is God's wrath. When we extend this concept of the word children, inferring a close relationship with a parent, as we've just discussed, then we see the awful result that a child of wrath will have a close relationship with God's wrath instead of God's love. That's really too terrible to contemplate. If we think back to earlier texts which demonstrated the enormity of God's power used then in love for us and then try to imagine that same force exerted in anger, then we should know real fear. In that knowledge too, we should know genuine gratitude for our salvation for it is from God's wrath that we have been spared. Paul has painted a dark picture of the unbeliever. Verse 3 speaks of what they do, living out the desires of their flesh and thoughts, and then what they are, a child destined only for God's wrath. This is the problem of both the individual person and the general population of mankind. To summarise then, we have learned today that as believers we were dead in our sins. Firstly, we did what everybody else did. We were exactly like the world around us. Secondly, we did what Satan wanted. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. And thirdly, we enjoyed doing those things because we did what pleased our flesh and mind. We were unable to change because all of this was so fundamental to our natures. In this state, there was only one possible consequence to be smashed and broken by God's wrath. Now, with all this talk of death and trespasses and sins, I have to admit this has been a pretty depressing package, uh, passage, lacking in encouragement. But rest assured that that is coming in spades soon. We must understand that there is merit in looking back to where we have come from. It brings perspective on where we are now. We will see in sermons to come that it has been necessary for Paul to make this reference mark so that we might fully appreciate what we have inherited and the reasons for us to make the right responses for the rest of our lives. We will turn the corner with that knowledge with our next passage that starts with those two exciting and wonderful words, but God. Let's look forward to that, but God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a timely reminder of where we have come from. Lord, it's painful and frightening to consider these things. But that doesn't mean that they aren't real and true. And Father, they have a real impetus to us to act. Thank you so much. Father, thank you for sparing us from that fate. Thank you for releasing us from being sons of and children of wrath and disobedience. Father, I pray that as we go into this week that we would remember these matters and that they would provoke us to better service for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.